I always knew I'd have kids. I just never intended to become a mother. I'm Dr. Lee Birch, and this is the Rockstar Parent Podcast. I'm a chiropractor, educator, life coach, and mom, although not necessarily in that order. Everyone has their own journey into motherhood. This podcast is devoted to telling my story and sharing what I've found to be successful along the way. Episode 25, how to get some me time without worrying about the screen time. Well, there I was boarding an airplane with two very active little boys. One was preschool age and the other was still young enough that I didn't have to buy him a seat of his own. We were part of that pre-boarding group. You know, the ones who need additional time getting down the jetway. And it's ironic, really, because I think families with young kids should really be the last ones on the plane. Why not let those kids run around the gate area and burn off some of that energy before getting on the plane and sitting still for hours? Instead, you're invited to board first and have your kids sit in their seats for an extra 30 minutes. Now, when my husband and I flew together, we would tag team, right? One of us would go ahead with all the gear and get situated. I'm not even sure what that phrase means, but that's what we would say. And the other one of us would stay in the gate area and let our kids keep moving around until the gate attendant called for final boarding. That is when you sneak your last trip to the bathroom in, and then you're the last ones on the plane. But this flight, I was going solo. So I figured me and my little guys needed that additional time, and we boarded early. Now, we had scored the bulkhead seats, which in retrospect also has its pros and cons. You do have some extra leg room, but you sacrifice having a place to store your diaper backpack close to you. The diaper backpack is the travel version of the diaper bag. It's stuffed with even more extra clothes, extra diapers and wipes, extra snacks, and all the extra things you need to keep your kids busy for the six-hour transcontinental nonstop flight that we were on that day. The travel backpack also has one little pocket where I shoved my wallet and some lip gloss because that's pretty much all I had to keep me busy that day. Besides my kids, of course. We had the window and the middle seat in the bulkhead, and I was hoping to keep my kids as corralled as possible without bothering the person who was lucky enough to have been assigned the aisle seat in our same row. Oh, and it's also pre 9-11, which means I'm carrying some water bottles I filled at home. I didn't need to take my shoes off when I went through security and oh, there's no such thing as a smartphone or a tablet yet. In fact, in the year 2000, Netflix is still sending us DVDs through the mail. And just for more context, It would be seven years before Netflix would begin streaming movies and nine years before I would retire my Motorola Razor flip phone for a fancy new thing called a smartphone. My flip phone was bright pink, actually, and my husband's was charcoal gray, so we'd never accidentally pick up the other person's phone, and the pink one was easier to find in the diaper backpack, should I need it. The fact is, I didn't need it, because the only thing the phone did was make phone calls. 
So it was pretty much at the very bottom of the diaper backpack and completely useless in the entertainment department on that flight. Now, back in the day, airplanes did have small TV screens that were located in the front of the plane, about a third of the way back, and then about two thirds of the way back. They would play one movie if the flight was long enough to accommodate it, and you actually didn't get to pick which movie it was. You would have to plug headphones or earbuds into the jack on your armrest and then dial the channel and the volume in. Now, rookie mistake was to put the headphones into your ears before plugging them into the jack and not checking the volume. The blaring sound coming into your head was a startling experience, but I guarantee you never made that mistake again. Well, on this flight, let's just say that even though we were close to the screen, the movie was not going to cater to my children's age group, so I wasn't counting on that helping keep my kids entertained either. You know, this was the point in my parenting where I had several books completely memorized. We would still hold the book in our hands and turn the pages, but I didn't actually need to read it to keep the story moving. Eric Carle was a favorite of mine since my own childhood. Brown Bear, Brown Bear had become a favorite of my kids and was in the regular rotation, as was my childhood favorite, The Very Hungry Caterpillar. Now, I'm completely dating myself here, but The Very Hungry Caterpillar was one of Eric Carle's new bestsellers when I was a toddler. And since we're on the subject of dating ourselves, I'm also a little bit older than Sesame Street, but we'll get more into screen time later. For now, let's say screen time wasn't going to be an issue on this flight, the real worry was, did I pack enough books and toys to keep my kids busy? And I was hoping at least one of them would sleep part of the way, because we all know how kids get if they don't get their naps in. It only took us a few minutes to get settled into our seats, and I tried to busy my oldest with an impromptu game of, let's try to guess which passenger is going to sit down next to us. It was a pretty long string of, do you think it's that person? Nope. Not that person, as they would pass by our row. What about this person? Nope, not them either. Well, as the minutes passed, I let myself hope that no one was actually going to sit in that seat next to us and we could spread out even more. But alas, one of the very last people on the plane, as if he knew he was going to be seated next to two very adorable but very energetic boys, was our row buddy. And he looked like he just stepped out of one of those movies where the main character is a college professor. Think Robert Langdon in the popular Dan Brown novels like The Da Vinci Code, although those books weren't published yet either at this time, but think older gentleman, tweed sport coat, reading glasses tucked into the pocket on his lapel or near his lapel, and he was holding one very big book. It was just one book, but it was large enough to definitely keep him busy for the entire flight. He stopped at our row and he smiled at us. I thought that was a good sign, the smiling part. There was no eye rolling or any immediate indication he was unhappy with who he'd be sitting next to. He took off his coat, folded it precisely, and began to place it in the overhead bin. He asked me if there was anything he could put up for me before he sat down. Another good sign. He was polite and helpful. I told him there wasn't anything he could do, but once we got into the air, I would be needing the overstuffed backpack that was in there taking up most of the space. 
He smiled again and told me he would be happy to retrieve it for me when that moment arrived. To be honest, I am not sure if he actually used the word retrieve, but he definitely could have, and it sounds smart, so let's just go with it. Now, he and I didn't talk much after that. He could tell that I had my hands full, and I could tell he wanted to read. It was actually what he was reading that day that really started me thinking about this concept of self-care as a mom. To this day, I can still remember exactly what started going through my head as he sat down and I saw the title of his book. It was War and Peace, and it was in Russian. Now, I don't read Russian, but the subtitle on the cover was in English so I could see the title. And I remembered it being quite a big book from my own days in college, so needless to say, I was immediately impressed. And then I was immediately overwhelmed with feelings of inadequacy. My mind was flooded with thoughts. I used to read big books without pictures that I didn't have memorized. I went to nine years of college before I had kids. I'm a doctor for heaven's sakes. This guy isn't any smarter than me. How does he dare to flaunt his education in front of me? Yeah, my mind actually went there. You know, this poor man said nothing to me except that first interaction about retrieving the backpack. But in my mind, I turned his warm smile into a judgy smirk. And I just knew he felt superior to me with my board books and my little baggies full of kitty snacks. I predicted that he wouldn't even take the peanuts from the flight attendant when they were offered because he was just too good for them. Now, you know, all of those thoughts went through my mind in about a millisecond of time. But I remember my body physiology changed. And in that moment, I felt less than, and it really bothered me. It was a very long flight that day for many reasons. Now, that gentleman was a lovely person who never minded moving to allow us to walk the aisles mid-flight. He did retrieve the diaper backpack as soon as the captain told us it was safe to unbuckle and move about the cabin. He never said a thing when the unthinkable happened and I had to change a poopy diaper right there next to him because it would be years before changing tables would make their way onto airplanes. He even told me that my kids were very well behaved as the plane landed and it had been a pleasure to sit next to us. And finally, he actually asked if he could help me carry anything off the plane when it was time to leave. Clearly, he hadn't judged me at all, but wow. I felt the weight of what I perceived as all my inadequacies that day, and they felt a lot heavier than my toddler and the overstuffed backpack I was carrying combined. As busy parents can attest, you don't have the luxury of obsessing about those particular feelings for long because life keeps happening. But I did promise myself at some point as we were leaving the airport to try to fit in some time to read a grown-up book in the next month just for fun. I don't think I actually ever read one, but I did think about it a few more times. Now, don't get me wrong. I did have the occasional girls' night out that I participated in over those first few years as a mom. There were playdates and going to the park where the kids ran around and the parents had time to chat. I had a group of friends that I walked with sometimes early in the morning several days a week, and we lived close to family. 
so we were lucky enough to have some built-in babysitters, which allowed my husband and I to go on date nights, semi-regularly too. It was about this time that I also found out I was pregnant with our third child. So when I actually... It was also about this time I found out I was pregnant with our third child. So whenever I actually sat down to maybe read a book or a magazine, I would immediately fall asleep. I was so tired all the time. Sunday afternoons were the highlight of the week because my husband and I would trade off taking an uninterrupted nap for about three hours. The lucky parent could go into the bedroom by themselves, close the door, get under the covers, and sleep while the other parent kept the kids busy. And often one or more of the other kids would sleep too. But if it wasn't my nap Sunday, I would put on a children's movie, lay down on the couch, wedge the non-nappers between my knees, and I would doze as well. Half of our kid-friendly movies at the time were on videotapes and the other half were on DVD. We were sort of caught in that whole conundrum of are DVDs really going to replace the VCR or were they going to be a fad like the whole Laserdisc thing? And if you don't even know what I'm talking about here, consider yourself lucky because that was when Disney movies would go into some black hole called The Vault and you could only buy them during certain years and then they would go away for some undisclosed amount of time. We had one media rack that housed our videotapes and then another media rack that housed our growing DVD collection. And our entertainment center not only held our TV, which weighed well over 100 pounds at the time because there was no such thing as flat screens yet, but it also had a VCR and a DVD player and a myriad of other devices. When I say there was like a lot going on there, take my word for it. I could tell you how life-changing the invention of the DVR was for parents, but I'm pretty sure you get my point. I mean, just imagine not having to physically rewind a tape when your kid wanted to watch the same 30-second scene over and over again. Like I said, life-changing. Now, it was shortly before my third kid was born, I realized that I had now completely lost myself in the hustle of parenthood. I felt unrecognizable when I looked in the mirror. Lots of sentences started with the words, before kids, I used to, and then, you know, just fill in the blank. I used to get dressed in pants with buttons and zippers. I used to talk in complete sentences and rarely had to use the phrase, no, that doesn't go in there. Before I had kids, I never talked about thinking chairs or worried about maps getting swiped. When I needed to use the restroom, I was actually alone. And I'm pretty sure I knew how to cook a dinner that was not only edible, but tasted good too before I had kids. And before kids, I used to read books with no pictures, and I liked it. What had happened to that girl? I liked her. She was cool to hang out with and I could spend all day with her. And all I could think at this point was, I just want her back. I remember thinking, plotting really, of ways that I could get her back. Maybe if I, no, that wouldn't work. But what if I, no, that's not gonna happen. But how about if I, oh wait, that might work. 
And it did. I pulled a resume together, went to the local community college, and applied for a part-time teaching position in the science department. I had two degrees, but no teaching experience, and I had a four-year-old, a two-year-old, and a three-month-old. Yeah, I thought as I walked into the building, I'd hire me. Not really. And as if it was a self-fulfilling prophecy, the dean of the College of Science told me not to expect a call back. He wasn't a risk taker, and I was a risk. I remember the exact words he said to me. You might be a diamond in the rough, but you might not be. And I'm not sure I have the time to find that out. I cried when I got back to my car. I consoled myself with the, well, at least you tried speech. You know, it's a actually a rough draft of the speech I have at the ready today, honed over decades of practice. But back then, the speech wasn't very convincing yet. And I feel fairly confident I also cried myself to sleep that night, too. You can imagine my surprise when the next day, the program manager of the science department called me and said that the dean had given her my name and number, and she was asking if I could teach one evening class two nights a week. It would be human anatomy for the non-science major. Could I? I thought. Of course. How soon can I begin? And that is when I stumbled upon what self-care truly means. The concept of self-care isn't exactly new. As early as the 50s and 60s, doctors were using that term to describe patients who had enough autonomy to be able to take care of their own personal hygiene and could practice healthy habits. It became a politically charged phrase through the 70s, but shifted into a holistic lifestyle movement in the 80s and 90s. After experiencing the tumult in the world in the early 2000s, the term morphed again into part of a treatment therapy for people suffering from PTSD or, if not officially diagnosed, self-care became a way to help a person get over difficult experiences. It's only been in the last decade or so that we have started to really promote the idea that there is a connection between caring for yourself and your ability to have resources left over to care for others. And that self-care is necessary to avoid exhaustion and burnout. So it's really easy to see why this concept adapted itself so well into the parenting space. Phrases like taking time to check in with yourself, developing mindfulness, listening to my body, body awareness, and being more intentional have really transitioned into the mainstream in this past decade, and it's easy to see why. Putting yourself and your own needs last, especially as a parent, is just not sustainable long term. Now, we all know it, but for me, getting hired to teach a night class at the local college showed me how to define and incorporate self-care for myself. The concept of self-care is as diverse as the number of people on the planet. What my definition of self-care is applies only to me, and yours will apply only to you. I could go get a mani-pedi or arrange for a few hours away at the spa, and although those might be relaxing for me, those activities don't actually fill my bucket or energize me in a meaningful way, and that was a mystery to me. 
why did spending a few hours out of the house without the kids not help me feel like a better mom? Well, the obvious answer could be the whole mom guilt angle. You know, I wasn't with my kids, giving my all to them, so therefore I felt guilty being away from them for a few hours. And I mean, yes, but really that didn't resonate with me either. If I was out, I knew my kids were in very good hands and often for my kids spending an evening at grandma's house was pretty dang fun for them anyway and they look forward to it. What teaching an anatomy class for non-science majors two evenings a week taught me was that is what refilled my bucket. That is what reminded me of who I was before I had kids. That feeling I got while I was giving a lecture or staying after class to answer a few questions That was the Lee I knew and I loved. And that is the Lee that was still in there. In my opinion, what self-care is for a busy parent is figuring out a way to incorporate your essence. Figuring out a way to work what makes you, you, into every single phase of your life. And let's not fall into the trap of thinking it's about simply having a job or collecting a paycheck. Because while my kids were teenagers and after my time teaching at the college ended, I volunteered for various organizations and that became my self-care. So to recap, you get to define what self-care is for you. We need to come to terms with the fact that self-care is not the same as self-indulgence. Self-care is essential. And to continue to function at our highest levels, we need to make space for it in our lives. All the research done in the productivity field points to the fact that taking regular breaks throughout your day are necessary to energize and feel refreshed. So why not put that research into the context of the parenting space and figure out a way to add some me time to your day as a busy parent. Now I wanna go back to my story about being hired to teach science at the college because it wasn't just about standing in front of the class for 90 minutes twice a week that gave me what I needed. It was also all of the prep work involved and there was lots of prep work. When I first started prepping my lectures, coming up with rubrics and assignments, designing labs, writing tests and grading papers, I estimate that it would take me at least two hours of of out-of-class time to prepare for one hour of in-class time. I was out of my home for two evenings per week, but I also needed to find about five to six hours per week while I was at home to do all of the other work. And remember, I had three kids and none of them were even in kindergarten yet. So how would I make this all work? Well, I loved doing all the prep work. That was also me time. That kind of stuff helped me feel like me. I would read the textbook and I took great pride in creating my lecture notes. I did lecture outlines for my classes that became their study guides for the exams. And I was incredibly thoughtful as I wrote exam questions and tried to structure the assignments to give students the opportunities to succeed. You know, when you teach at night, you have a higher percentage of what we call the non-traditional college student. So not 18 to 22 years old living with parents or in a dorm. Many of my night students had full-time day jobs, families, mortgages, and not a lot of free time. 
And I understood what that felt like. I was trying to balance some of those things myself. So how did I carve out that me time during my week with three young kids at home? Well, here's where we talk about screen time. And, you know, maybe I should dig even deeper into one of my basic parenting philosophies. I call it the forbidden fruit principle. So the reference comes from the Bible and the story of Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, but the gist is anchored in psychology. If I were to tell you to not think about a pink elephant, are you able to comply? Well, the answer is no, because you have to think about a pink elephant before you can try to not think about it. There's actually a name for this phenomenon, and it's called the ironic process theory. Deliberate attempts to suppress certain thoughts actually make them more likely to come to the surface. But I adapt this concept in terms of parenting. So when I was a kid, anytime my parents told me not to do something or I couldn't have something or to stay away from something, all it did was pique my curiosity. I had to think about doing or having the thing in order to think about not doing or not having the thing. But a parent's job is to keep their kids safe. And so my parents had to set up boundaries and rules in our home as I was growing up, just like we do in our own homes. But the subtle shift here is not simply creating a list of do nots for our kids, but teaching them they have the agency to choose between a few different options. Now, once they make a choice, they very often, in fact, almost always, do not get away from the consequences of their choice. And this applies to what we would label good consequences and bad consequences. So for example, you can choose to touch a hot stove, but you can't choose to not get burned. Make sense? So let me give you an example of this in action in our family with my own kids. Of course, I wanted my children to make healthy food choices, but the fact is that I love junk food. And because I love junk food, we always had some in our house, both sweet and salty. I like sugar cereals and candy, and I like to drink soda, and I like chips, and you know, you name it. Now, I also love healthy food, so we had a bunch of that in the house too. Whole grains, fruits, vegetables, lean meats, dairy, etc. And I often fed my kids a good portion of healthy food along with a small portion of junk food together at the same meal. You know, I didn't set out to do it that way and I wasn't intentional at first about it. It just sort of evolved that way. Now, if my kids wanted a snack and asked for a cookie, I always told them they could have one. And if they were still hungry to also grab something from the healthy category as well. And if they were hungry enough to want to gorge on junk food, well, then they probably needed a meal, not a snack. And so we would make a meal. Now, I don't want you to envision me making tons of meals every day for every kid at different times. It wasn't like that at all. We all ate breakfast. We all ate lunch. We all ate dinner. And in between, there were some snacks thrown in. And this whole system worked for me. And honestly, my kids never really begged for junk food. When we moved into the house that we raised our teenagers in, we ended up with a designated candy drawer. 
You know, it probably started because after some holiday, there was extra candy and I didn't want it sitting out on the counter where I would see it all the time and binge on it myself. So I probably put it in a drawer and it just sort of continued from there. It's not like the candy drawer was a secret hiding place. Anyone could go grab something anytime they wanted, including friends of my kids who came over. And I'm completely sure I had no idea that this experiment would work in the way that it did with all three of my kids. But what I noticed is that the leftover Halloween candy was pretty much still there when the Christmas candy started coming in. And the Christmas candy was pretty much still there when the Valentine's Day candy appeared. And by the time Easter hit, well, there was still Halloween and Christmas and Valentine's candy in the drawer and it was obviously time to do some clearing out. I think you get what was happening. Because it was always available, it didn't ever fall into the forbidden category. My kids never even thought about it, and they never binged on it. The net effect of this is that my kids grew into teenagers and are now adults who are all pretty healthy eaters. My kids also have a healthy relationship with junk food. They allow themselves to indulge every so often, but they rebound back to mostly healthy food choices overall. I was recently talking to my adult daughter, and she summed it up pretty well, I think. She said, because she knew the junk food was always available to her, she was never curious about it. She never felt like she needed to binge on it because it wasn't going anywhere. She could always have more if she wanted. And she just never ended up wanting more. And this is a girl who still routinely chooses a handful of a whole grain snack or a fruit over cookies or chips every day of the week, even though she's completely on her own and cooking for herself now. It's interesting, right? Now, we don't have food allergies in our little family, so I was able to have some more latitude in the foods I could bring into my house, and I realized that. And ultimately, this is a judgment-free zone. So if you run a no-junk food home, I say go you. You do you. I just knew I couldn't do it myself, and so I figured out this way to work around that. Food is just one example of how I applied the forbidden fruit principle. Screen time is another example. Now, I'm a left brain science nerd, I've said it before, and I'm all about the research. But there are times that the research doesn't take into account your individual situation. So you need to adapt it to fit the needs of your family. And honestly, at the point I got hired to teach the college class, I needed five to six hours per week during the day where I could focus and prep materials for my job. And this is where the screen time stuff comes in. I feel fairly confident that over the six years I taught for the college, my daughter must have watched Pirates of the Caribbean 1,000 times. She bounced back and forth from binging Dora the Explorer to watching Captain Jack Sparrow all through her toddler years. And I'm just going to be honest about it. I am unapologetic about this topic altogether. Because when it was me time, which for me was defined as prepping lectures and labs and writing tests, my kids had full access to all their toys in the TV. And that was in addition to the other TV we might watch throughout the day or video games they might play as well. I was pretty vigilant about what they watched, but how much they watched when I was doing my work was very much within their control. Were there days where they watched a lot of TV? Yes, there were. And that consisted mostly of Nick Jr. and Disney movies in our house. But were there also some days where they watched no TV? Also, yes. 
And did they know that at a certain point in time and every day I was going to stop doing my work and give them my full attention again? Of course, they also knew that too. This is a time when I needed to say, the research is clear, but my personal experience flies in the face of it. So the conclusion I come to is, be the parent your kid needs, not the parent the research says your kid needs. Do what's best for your kid. Check out the research, figure out what works for your family, and realize it's absolutely okay for other families to do the very same thing for themselves as well. And in this instance, my kids watching TV while I prepped for work left me feeling energized and ultimately what I believe was a better mom during the many more hours that they weren't watching TV during the week and my attention was fully focused on them. So let's circle back to self-care. I think it's difficult for parents and especially moms to even wrap their heads around putting themselves first when they have especially young children at home. Our time in that season of life is very much about making sure our kids have everything they need. And sometimes that happens at the expense of us being able to get what we need. But the point is, that is not sustainable long term. I absolutely did lose myself in those early years of motherhood. But I figured out a way to find myself in the journey to bring back the essence of who I was at my core within the structure of my life with my family. And I will actually submit to you that who I became once I incorporated meaningful, resonating self-care into my life was a better version of me before kids. I was more balanced, more understanding, more experienced. It wasn't about going back in time to regain who I lost but discovering who I could become. Lee 2.0, if you will. And I fell in love with her. She was strong enough to bear babies and experienced enough to know how to raise them. And I ended up embracing her. And if we want to fast forward a few decades, I actually went through this process all over again, figuring out who I was as my kids began leaving home and I entered the world of empty nesting. It's sort of disarming to all of a sudden have all this extra time on my hands that used to be filled with tending to my kids' daily needs. It would have been very easy to lose myself in all of the activities I had available to me that tend to fill time but leave us feeling empty. Those are distractions, and once again, I had to figure out how to fill my time with the things that were restorative for me. Now, to be completely honest, I lost myself in a binge-watching marathon. Shows I had never had time to watch before, and I ate junk food for the entire first month after my youngest kid left for college. I told myself I had earned it, that I deserved it. And you know what? I stand by it. I had earned some time to figure things out. But I also realized that that kind of downtime wasn't restorative, and it wasn't going to serve me long term. It wasn't going to serve the real me. So I started a business and here I am doing something that I love and filling my bucket every single day. I found myself again, and I'm learning to love Lee 3.0. 
It's about not being afraid to lose yourself in the hustle of parenthood so that you can find yourself in the journey. And making space for self-care is the key to doing just that. The only thing left for you to do after you find yourself is to embrace who you become over and over and over again. If you enjoyed this episode of the Rockstar Parent Podcast, please consider leaving a review and sharing the link with your friends. Remember, you can always subscribe to the podcast as well, so you'll be the first to get notified as soon as new episodes are published. I'm just a girl who was ready to start her family, so I got pregnant and had a baby. But what I learned as I raised my own kids, that is the secret to becoming the parent I dreamed I could be and is exactly what I'm sharing with you. Let's rock this parenting thing together.